Hello and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on US foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. And I'm Trevor Thrall. The Trump era has been pretty difficult for those of us who work on foreign policy in the policy community. It's very hard to engage with complex issues around the world when the government is sclerotic and disorganized. But it might be even harder for our colleagues in the academy, who must deal not only with questions of research and policy, but also how to teach students and engage publicly with the issues when foreign policy is run by tweet. Our guest today is Paul Post, and Paul has built a reputation for excelling at public engagement in the Trump era. Um, He does these multi-tweet Twitter threads um, that draw on his lectures in international security, draw on a variety of useful data sources, and he contextualizes and explains what's happening in foreign policy today. There's no vitriol, it's just facts and context. Um, So we're really pleased to have him with us today to talk about these issues. Paul is an associate professor of political science at the University of Chicago. His academic work focuses on alliances, war and peace. And he was also a recent guest at the Cato Institute for a great policy forum titled titled Is War Over, which you can watch at Cato.org. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Trevor, for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we we normally talk about topical issues on power problems and and research and what's going on in the world, Um, but I wanted to get a little meta today um, and talk about how we talk about those issues. (laughs) Um, So in addition to your day job, you have become really well known on social media for these very lengthy um, Twitter threads that present relevant literature and data related to what's happening in the news today. Um, And so I guess my first question is, what made you start doing this? No, I, I appreciate that. And you know, what's funny is the way you framed what you said, which is in addition to my day job, I, I do these things. And in, and in some ways, I view what I do on, in particular, Twitter as part of my day job um, because I actually started using Twitter in 2018. And a major reason why I wanted to do that was I thought, you know, if I could start engaging on social media, that could be a way that I could bring that into the classroom. I could actually have my students, for example, say, hey, follow me on Twitter because I'm going to post relevant readings and so forth, but also the content itself might be informative to you. I teach like a large intro to international relations course. And so that was actually something that initially prompted me to want to start using Twitter was I thought this could be something that could be part of of what I do. Um, But what I started to realize was it wasn't just that my students found this useful, but other people started finding this useful. And in particular, I had graduate students who would follow me on Twitter and say, hey, this is really useful when you post these readings, so forth. And then other individuals who, of course, have an interest in international affairs, either in the think tank community, policy community, or just people in general who are just curious and interested. And so that started to give me um, I guess some momentum, if you will, to say that this this seems like something that is resonating with a lot of people, um, my use of Twitter. And so that led me to then say, well, you know, I should just continue to try to refine this and improve this. Um, so that was kind of the motivation that led me to do this at first. Now, in terms of the long threads, you know, what really prompted me to start doing these like long 20, 25 tweet long threads Um was, I mean, first of all, some of the topics just there's a lot to say. <laughs> um, but secondly, is actually in some ways, um, I found it a way that I could communicate my thoughts more efficiently than if I was writing a blog 
or if I was, say, even running a podcast like this right now. Um, And the reason why is because one of the things I take a lot of pride in when I'm teaching is creating slides and PowerPoint slides, but trying to create engaging slides. And so in many ways, I found the creation of these tweets is kind of like each tweet is like a mini slide. And so it's almost like I'm putting together a a mini lecture uh, or the slides for a lecture to where I've even had people with after some of these threads, they say, hey, that was really great. Would you want to write? Could you write that into a blog? And I'm almost like, no, well, no, I can't because that would take all the time. The reason I wrote it as a thread is because I don't have the, the time to craft the exact words to write this. And so that was something that really led to then the threads themselves was I just felt like this was a very efficient way for me to be able to convey information that maybe other folks would have conveyed in, say, a blog format. Fascinating. I mean, so you've covered a lot of interesting topics. And I think um, for, for those of us that have sort of been watching you over the last year or two, that's been the the sort of the most amazing thing about this is the breadth of topics that you've covered. Um, you know, I wrote down just a few here. NATO, trade, um, one of my personal favorites, uh, the use of the phrase great Satan uh, in Iranian <laughs> politics. Um, and so I guess I have to ask, you know, which, which one of those was your favorite? Um, and were there any topics you found particularly difficult? So one of my favorite ones was last year um, when President Trump. So, you know, these these threads can be motivated by a variety of things. Um, Sometimes they're just simply a topic that I'm going to be lecturing on in class. And I say, hey, you know, this would be um, this could be of interest to other people. And so, for example, you mentioned like the, the debate that I participated in today here at Cato. And that was on the decline of war. Well, I I teach about that. And so one of these threads was on that. I was like, okay, well, here's what I taught my students. But sometimes, and actually more frequently than not, and this is, I think, a great advantage of our current president, is our current president will either tweet something or say something that makes me say, hey, let's think about this. And so some people might even look at that comment and immediately say, oh, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. Why is he saying that? Great example, and hence one of my favorite threads, is when Brazil was being considered as a to be um, authorized as a major non-NATO ally, official, official designation. President Trump was having a press conference with the president of Brazil, and President Trump off the cuff says, well, why can't Brazil – Brazil should just even be a NATO ally, right? We should just bring them into NATO. And right away, people just started saying, that's ridiculous. Why would you even say that? That's just – no, NATO's here. And I wrote a thread where I said, well, it's actually not that ridiculous. And then what I did was I walked through and I found this from my own research from writing a book where one of the chapters is about the negotiation of NATO. What I did was I wrote a thread that walked through the history of the NATO negotiations and about how Brazil was actually brought up during the NATO negotiations when they were saying, well, who who should fall under this? What is North Atlantic? How do we define that? Because technically part of Brazil is in the North Atlantic, depending on where you draw North Atlantic's line. Also, at the time in the late 40s, Brazil had contributed, uh, was a huge contributor to the Atlantic War during World War II, which had just ceased. So there was actually viewed value of having potentially Brazil part of this. Ultimately, they decided, no, and this is actually their view. They, they didn't say the U.S. Um, officials at the negotiations didn't say this is ridiculous to have Brazil part of it. They said, no, we think Brazil's covered under the Rio Pact. Therefore, they don't need to be part of NATO. But that's an example of one that actually a lot of people, it resonated with a lot of people because it was, again, one of these examples of at first people said that's ridiculous. And then I was able to write a thread that made people go, oh, 
okay, maybe that's maybe that's not so ridiculous after all. So so let me pick up on that. One of the things that one of the joys, let's just say, of tweeting inside the Beltway is that everything seems like a conflict, and every tweet has the possibility uh, to get likes and shares um, from friends, but also flames and and you know mad bombings of criticism from enemies. Um, you've tried to chart sort of a, a a neutral public intellectual path, but I have to ask, you, you have a lot of people seeing your tweets. Uh, what's the response like? Yeah. So I, we were actually, Emma and I were talking about this uh, earlier. So, I, you know, I've been able to build up, a, a, you know, one indicator of this is, of course, how many people follow me, right? And and I don't have 100,000 followers. I don't have whatever President Trump's is, 56 million followers and what have you. But my, you know, I, I've been able to, um, accrue a, a number of followers and 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 to me that's a good sign that people do appreciate what I'm doing. The goal and and where I see value, it goes back to what I said at the beginning here, which is to me, I view what I do on Twitter as part of my day job and and motivating what motivated me to start using social media was as an educational tool for my students. And then hence seeing that there was appetite for that in the broader community. And I think it is because of what you said that there aren't I I don't see a lot of people who are trying to just provide that neutral like I just want to understand what's going on. And I I. So I try to fill that space. And that means at times, hence like the Brazil example I gave, I'll say, look, what President Trump is saying is actually not crazy. This is actually a, a good idea. And then there's been times where I'm saying, no, this is like, no, this is this is ridiculous. But I then try to say, here is why. And um, but yeah, you're you're exactly right that as a result, no, I'm not I'm not a uh, what do you call social media influencer in the way that I would be otherwise. You're very snappily dressed, though. You could go on Instagram. That's uh, true. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> but, but but perhaps um, with what you were saying there about you know this is how I teach. Um, I did want to ask you, you know, how do you approach the question of teaching in the Trump era? Because this is something I hear quite a lot from, you know, sort of former grad school colleagues who've gone on to become professors and, you know, who engage with students on a daily basis, about how challenging it can be to teach topics that touch on the, the issues of the day in an era where almost everything is partisan and yeah. polarized. Yeah. See, I... Uh... That is a question that I think a lot of people struggle with. Um, for me, though, I my view is actually this is a great time to be teaching because so many people are engaged. So many people want to. And, and I think this then feeds into why people want to see the kind of content that I put on social media because they're like, no, I, I want to understand this issue. In terms of the students, I mean, the I was faced – I'll give a little bit of a personal story here. I was faced – very quickly with the need to how to constructively approach President Trump. And the reason why was this. So after the election, the election was, of course, on a Tuesday, um, the election results, I was teaching an undergraduate class that met on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So we had already had class, then the election. I knew that that Thursday I would have class again. I knew from the sentiment of quite a few folks on campus, like a lot of college campuses, there were, you know, a lot of students were upset that Hillary Clinton had lost, President Trump was elected. However, I knew that in my class, I knew there were a few students who were Trump supporters. And they were also good students, too. It wasn't like, you know, these were people who had put thought into why they were Trump supporters. So I knew that if I was going to say anything about this, 
it was going to, at least I felt like it was kind of my job, my obligation to how can this be approached ba- in a balanced manner. And so what I ended up doing was that day, you know, we, we have class, everything. And then at the end of class, I knew some of the students wanted to know what I thought. And so I said to them, I said, I, I'm going to share with you what I've shared with a few other people the past few days. I said, if you are upset about what just happened on Tuesday, calm down. And if you're thrilled about what just happened on Tuesday, calm down. <laughs> because my sense is things, the worst that you're envisioning if you're upset is probably not going to happen. And all the th- great things that you think are going to happen because Trump won are probably not going to happen um, because of, and then, you know, you can turn that into a lesson about executive constraints and so forth and, 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 and et cetera, et cetera. But that, you know, I, I so, you know, I share that as like right away, I had to kind of like say, how can I approach this topic in a way that regardless of which side you're on, you're like, I can take something from this and not kind of reveal my hand, if you will, in terms of my own personal views or allowing my own personal bias, political bias to kind of influence it. Yeah, it's it's really important to think, especially in most college campuses, not all, but most, where the majority of kids in a poli-sci class are going to be liberal and the smattering of of conservative kids often feel the spiral of silence pressing down on them because yeah. um, they don't have much support and it gets hard for them to enjoy class if you don't create a safe space. And I don't mean that in a silly way. I mean, in a real intellectual sense that if the conversation isn't going to be held, if you're not going to have rules about the way you're allowed to talk about things, then it's really impossible for everyone to share in a good conversation. And and one of the things that I try to do is I do, I, I mean, again, because of what I said that I, if anything, I think Trump is great for teaching this subject because just like he's great for my Twitter threads, he provides a lot of content <laughs> every day. He's, he's a civics lesson. He is. Yeah. And, and, and his tweets and they're right out there. And so in his speeches. And so I actually bring those into the lectures. Like, for example, if I'm having a lecture about what is sovereignty, I'll have a line from his UN speech where he uses the word sovereignty a bunch. And I'm like, why did President Trump want to use this term? And so it's just raised as a very intellectual question. But it's like, here's an example of him doing it. The other thing is there'll be times where I'll actually just post his tweet up on on a slide. And what's great about it is even people who are Trump supporters will recognize that these tweets sometimes are ridiculous. <laughs> like, or sometimes I'll just like even read part of one of his speeches. I'll put like he or he was saying, you know, because he'll start talking off the cuff and I'll just start reading. And it gets the intellectual point behind. Like, if, for example, he was saying something one time about climate change and, and we were talking in, in the bigger point that he was trying to raise. And I even do that. I said, well, the bigger point President Trump's trying to raise is about how China was not being held to the same standards. And so therefore, this is unfair to the United States. But I read first what he said in the speech, and it was just this rambling, like, well, then there's garbage coming over and it hits our beaches, blah, blah, blah. And so even students, like everybody could recognize, yes, this is kind of funny, regardless of which political side they're on. So that's part of the approach that I try to do is let's let me say, what is it that Trump's, (laughs) if you will, what is he trying to say? And then let's think about that. And then, yes, in the process, it can also be funny to actually see what he actually says. 
You know, it's it's funny. We're usually not very positive about the president and his foreign policy here on this podcast, just because Trevor and I sort of tend that way. But I do think something that we actually don't give him enough credit for is the fact that he has opened up discussion and debate on a bunch of issues that we just really, the debate was very closed off on before, whether it's, you know, um, whether we should pull out of Afghanistan or whether it's on NATO free riding, which I know you've worked on a bunch before, um, things that we just really weren't talking about publicly. And even if he's not broaching them, perhaps in the best way possible, they're out there and suddenly we can actually talk about them. Uh, great. That's a great point. And that's something else where kind of going back to my social media usage, um, another favorite thread that I had was President Trump had made a comment. Um, he made a comment and he also had a tweet about why is it that the U.S. is taking on this responsibility in the Persian Gulf? You know, we get very little of our oil directly from there. Um, shouldn't other countries that get more of their oil from there take on this responsibility? And, you know, he said it in his own Trump way, which is maybe not, you know, the the, the most refined way of saying it. But I actually I actually started this Twitter thread off by saying that's a good question. And it's exactly what you're saying. It's like he he is opening up this question that I think other people were afraid to ask. And it's like, yeah, why is the U.S. there? And then I lay out, well, there's there's reasons why it goes right back. You can, you know, it goes back to FDR and even before then. And so um, we have this longstanding relationship and, you know, hege- hegemony and maintaining sea lanes, et cetera, et cetera, and global oil prices. But it created that space for that debate that I think otherwise it's like, if I just kind of said, hey, I bet you've never thought about why the U.S. is involved in the Persian Gulf, it'd be like, no, I haven't. And then people would just go about their day. But with President Trump raising these questions, it suddenly gets people engaged and animated about it to where it now creates a space for someone like me to come in and say, hey, let's talk about that issue now. Now, I may disagree with President Trump, but again, as you said, it creates the space to actually have that discussion. Yeah, I mean, that is very true. As somebody that has been trying to broach discussion on this topic for a number of years, it's incredibly true. Um, and actually, allow me uh, to divert here and just say, if you are interested in that topic, we'll be having an event here at Cato on March 4th at 12 o'clock. You can watch it live online where we're going to talk about that Trump speech where he said, why are we in the Middle East? America's energy independent. And we're going to talk about the extent to which that is true, false, um, and what it actually means for our posture in the Middle East. That's great. But um, let, let's switch gears for a minute because sure. um, I do want to give you the chance to actually talk about your your academic work. <laughs> Most of the people we have on the podcast are here to talk about their books or their work. Um, so um, you've done a lot of work on alliances. I think that was your most recent book. Um, yeah. Would you like to talk about that or about something else you're working on at the moment? Yeah. So uh, the 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 book on alliances that just came out, it's titled uh, Arguing About Alliances, and uh, Cornell Press just published it late last year. And uh, I kind of referred to it a little bit already because um what the book looks at is it looks at the negotiations to form alliances that i think a lot of times what we've done as scholars and and even people who have just thought about this issue outside of the academy have said well yeah there's states who are who are allies and there's states who aren't and what i point out is well there's also states who tried to form an alliance and failed to do so and we could probably understand a lot about why alliances form if we look at those failed cases and then also think about what are the conditions that were present in those failed cases and then what enabled, say, successful cases to succeed. 
And like a lot of my research, I do try to bring data, large end data to bear on it. So I had collected data on all sorts of failed negotiations, all sorts of successful negotiations, and you know, use regression analysis to look for correlations and what have you. But probably the most fun parts of the book to write where I wrote two case studies, one of a failed negotiation, one of a successful negotiation. And both of these have found their way into my Twitter threads uh, in multiple occasions, one of which I already gave an example, and that was the case of a successful negotiation was the negotiation of the North Atlantic Treaty in 1948-1949. And that was a fascinating case, largely because And this very much relates back to what we've been talking about. If we think about NATO and we think about President Trump's criticisms of NATO and that being also another thing that's kind of, you know, his way of phrasing things has opened up space for people to think about, yeah, why are we involved in NATO? Why are we engaged in NATO? Well, you do realize that uh, what I realized by studying this case was that was actually an open question when NATO was this, was negotiated that, you know, now we we celebrate the 70th anniversary and we're like, oh, NATO is great. And it's you know, like this pillar of the liberal international order. But it turned out it was actually an open question when NATO was being negotiated and an open question, both in terms of would the U.S. be willing to do this? But then also once the U.S. kind of decided to do it, and it was largely because the British and the Canadians kind of convinced the U.S. this could be in their interest. Um But even once they got into negotiations, those negotiations almost failed. And they almost failed because um, there was a big debate between France and the United States about the parameters of of North Atlantic. France wanted Italy to be part of it. The U.S. and the British weren't so sure. The U.S. and the British wanted Norway to be part of it. France was like, no, that'll make it an Arctic treaty, not an Atlantic treaty. Um, And then France also said, well, no, we want Algeria to be included as part of this. And that was a huge debate. And and actually, Dean Acheson writes about this in his memoirs, uh, Present at the Creation, where he says uh, he actually had to sit down and walk U.S. senators through why Algeria was so important to France and, you know, basically drawing the analogy that it's kind of like Florida. It's like, you know, you wouldn't want to sign a treaty without Florida being covered. So, you know, it's an idea. So that was a fascinating case, but it just showed where here's an alliance that we take for granted today. And it turns out that there was this actual very vigorous process of even making that into creation. Um, and so that's that's why that was part of that, that was actually one of the more fun things to really read in that book. And again, as to kind of tie it back to where we're saying is I've been able to work these things into my Twitter threads. And and that's another area where as a scholar, as a professor, is made me very excited about the use of social media has been for me, it's been a very tangible way of where my teaching and my research have come together. It's just like that. Sometimes I'm writing a Twitter thread where I'm drawing on something I'm teaching. Sometimes I'm writing a Twitter thread where I'm drawing on something that I've researched. Um, and then sometimes the, t- the media itself actually generates the research. Case in point, the whole decline of war, this piece that Tanisha Fazal and I wrote for Foreign Affairs – um, Nisha had been writing, had written quite a bit on this. She'd written a, a, a really influential international security piece in 2014, uh, critical of like the Steven Pinker type view. And I, on social media, had raised some of the um, 
points that I raise with my students about the data and about like World War One, World War Two being these outliers and they could throw up the trends and and also raising questions about civilian casualties or or even just military injuries versus deaths. And then Nisha wrote and said, hey, you know, I like the points you're raising here. And that's kind of led to some conversations. And then we ended up writing this piece together. So that was a piece of actual research that came out of, you know, kind of the neat combination of the teaching, the social media and the research all together. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. You know, I've had similar experiences where I've had articles come out of debates on social media. And, and you know, from that point of view, I think it's a really useful tool for the kind of um, collaboration and debate that previously we would have only had as a profession at conferences. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Social so networking, not just for teenagers. Yes. <laughs> so let's let's back up a second, though, because um, I do also want to talk about the the event this morning a little and give people sort of a little teaser of what that is, and then they can go listen to the full event if they're interested in the topic. So um, the event was called, you know, Is War Over? Um, and you were here and you were primarily talking uh, about your research, mo- mostly this article that you wrote with Tanisha yeah. Fazal, um, in which you guys argue that the decline of war is, is overrated, yeah. um, would be a massive oversimplification of your argument. Um, and most of the other people on the panel today were arguing the opposite. Um, but do you want to just give us a very quick overview of um, where you come from on this issue? Yeah. So the, the decline of war debate is, in my view... Probably one of the most important questions in all of international relations, not that everybody directly studies it, but it kind of overlays almost all questions that we ask. Um, And that's the idea, basically, that war has dramatically declined since the end of the Second World War. Exactly. Yes, that's right. It's it's this claim that since World War II, there's been uh, the absence of major power war. There has been a decline in the deadliness of war. There's been a decline in the onset of war. And the reason why this kind of overlays everything we do is, is in part because people will say, well, Why is that? Well, maybe it's because of U.S. hegemony. Maybe it's because of the spread of democracy. Maybe it's because of the spread of trade. So so it has all these implications. But it's really fundamentally, it's an empirical question. It's an empirical question of, is that the case? Is this trend real? And, um, And then also, is this trend real and could it revert? And that was kind of that's kind of a big question. So my remarks today, I started off by saying, um, so, yes, I am of the view that, no, there has not been a marked decline in war in a fundamental level. I said, however, I will acknowledge the caveat that since World War II, there has not been a World War III. And then I came in and said, and, and, and that's a good thing. That is a good thing. We haven't had World War III. Um, but I said, there's two caveats. The first caveat is I should put yet at the end of that sentence, because just because we haven't yet seen it doesn't mean that there aren't structural features of the system that could enable something like that to happen. Nuclear weapons being uh, a very prominent example. If there was World War III, it would probably be much shorter than World War II, World War I, but it could be dramatically more devastating than those. So that was one caveat. The second caveat was when you're having this debate about has there been a decline in warfare, World War I and World War II probably shouldn't be your baseline. It probably shouldn't be your starting point for thinking about this issue. Because I will totally acknowledge that if you, for example, one measure people like to use for this, say they like to look at battle deaths, look at how many people have died in war per year. And I will totally acknowledge that since World War II, that number has been in decline. 
because you're starting with a huge outlier with 1945 with the number of battle deaths that are occurring. However, if you look over a larger time frame, say since the middle of the 19th century even to today, what you notice instead is that World War I and World War II are these huge outliers. They're these huge spikes. And instead, the 19th century and the early 20th century and the late 20th century and the early 21st century look very similar. And so what that leads is one of the claims that we make is that that would lead you to say that there really hasn't been this fundamental change in the system. War has been about the same. Now, that leads to a second part of the argument. And this is really where Nisha's argument, really um, her work comes in, is you could look at those 19th century wars and you could say, yeah, but even then those wars seem to typically kill more people than even the wars in the late 20th century, early 19th or early 21st century. And what Nisha points out in her work is that's probably due to improvements in battlefield medicine, not due to a change in our use of weaponry. In fact, if anything, our weaponry has become even more devastating, um, greater ability to kill. But we've also exceeded the ability to uh, the ability of our weapons to kill has been exceeded by our ability to save soldiers who are then shot and killed. So an example, a statistic that is very prominent on this, because to be honest, not a lot of countries have great data on this. But in World War Two, the casualty to death ratio or not a casualty, but injured to death ratio was two to one for the United States. So two soldiers would be injured for every soldier that was killed in Afghanistan. That's in Iraq. It's 10 to one. So 10 soldiers are injured for every one that's killed. And that's due to everything from clotting agents that can be used on the battlefield to just simply our ability to evacuate soldiers quickly off the battlefield. And the other point that um, Nisha makes in her work, and then we bring this into the foreign affairs piece, is that that technology is not just unique to the United States. Other countries are able to have access to this technology too. And so that might actually, if there is any difference between the deadliness of late 19th century wars and early 21st century wars, we argue that that's largely due to those technological changes in medicine, not due to, well, as I ended the remarks today, hearkening Pinker, not due to the better angels of our nature getting the better of us. You know, and for policy implications, it's an important distinction. It really is, because if we believe that wars are becoming sort of less deadly or wars are becoming less frequent, then we may take certain policy actions. If if it's actually the case, then instead it's just we injure a lot more soldiers that actually get killed. That's a very different thing. Um, and, you know, when I look at sort of the last two decades of war, um, what I see is, well, they are less deadly, but if you look at the number of veterans that have come back with substantial injuries, yes. um, that number is just so much higher than it has been in previous conflicts. And that's a that's a consequence that we're really not thinking about as we talk about all these sort of little overseas contingencies we're fighting in today. But, yeah. No, absolutely. And I've just, uh, we were chatting before, I mean, the, the, you know, what should you be doing to prevent war? That conversation changes radically, you know, based on what you think is causing the decline. And if you're wrong about there being a decline in the first place, then all the things you were arguing for because they prevent war, well, you just lost your justification for those policies. And in some cases, you may be doing more harm than good. I mean, it Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and kind of pulling this back then to the, the social media angle is 
a number of my threads, I would say this is probably the topic that I've had the most threads about, um, which is part of what then motivated Nisha and I to write this foreign affairs piece. And, and is part of why then I was able to come here today, because I think it is. First of all, I think it's a topic that for people who for a lot of folks, they don't even really they're not even necessarily aware that this is a debate. Um, they might even be familiar with Pinker's book, but then not realize, that, oh, wait, there's a counter narrative to this. Um, but I think a lot more of it has to do with what you just raised, which is people think through what are the implications of this, that this debate matters because if it turns out that there is not a decline of war, then and this was a, a point that I raised today. If one of the arguments for the, quote, liberal international order, which is what we call all the various international institutions that the U.S. has helped to create since World War II, the spread of democracy since World War II, spread of economic uh, interdependence since World War II. One of the arguments made for why that's a great thing is, well, decline of war. You know, people, the world's more peaceful, we're wealthier, more prosperous, et cetera. But if, the, if it turns out that, well, no, actually that had no effect on war. Well, then that very much changes, I think, the narrative about the necessity of these institutions, right? If you, you know, just think about a few years ago, the European Union won the Nobel Peace Prize, which I still think is kind of interesting. I was always like, shouldn't Jean Monnet have won the Nobel Peace Prize? Not the, but anyways, that, that's, another, that's, a, that's, that's another topic for another time. But it won because it was it was perceived that, yes, this has played a huge role in preventing peace. And, and I do think that there's validity to that argument. I think the EU has done certain things to help uh, in that regard. But more broadly, if you say, well, that means NATO, that means the WTO, that means all these international, that means the UN, all of these institutions have played this fundamental role in, in reducing the prevalence of warfare. If you instead say, well, no, actually, they haven't done anything, then you come away and you say, well, then what are they doing? And then that creates space for people who maybe will phrase the argument a little bit differently than President Trump, but it creates space for people who come in and are like, yeah, why are we supporting NATO again? Why are we supporting the UN again? Why are we doing this? And if the answer is, oh, well, look at the decline of war. Okay, maybe that's a convincing answer. If you can sit there and say, President Trump, you don't want more. You, I don't think you want another U.S. cemetery in France. So this is why we need to keep NATO. But if the answer is, no, that's actually not going to affect whether or not there's another U.S. cemetery in France, that's a different story. That's a different policy implication. So I think that's part of the reason why this debate has resonated with so many folks. Well, that's, that's about all we have time for. If, if you want to hear more on this debate, um, I strongly recommend go to the Cato website. The event is called Is War Over? You can pull down the audio or watch the event online um, and you can hear more about this topic. Um, but thank you, Paul, so much for joining us today. Um, it's been a really interesting conversation. Um, and thanks uh, to our producer, Cecil Sherman, um, to everybody at home for listening. If you want to continue this conversation, our Twitter handle is at Power Problems. And if you want to follow Paul and his continued engagement with the public, you can find him at Prof Paul Post. Please do leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. Until next time. 